Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're joining us for the story series. This week, Peter Marshall talks about the disastrous consequences of sin on God's creation. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Enjoy. So over the last couple of Sundays we've been here at Zeal, we've heard from Phil and Justin about Act 1, which was creation. Um, We've been thinking about it in terms of it being part of a grand narrative of scripture. And uh, Justin suggested to us that a story, at its most basic, is about a character who wants something but has to overcome something to get it. And I think we thought about Act 1 in those terms, or at least Justin presented it like that, as uh, telling us about God, the character, what he wants, uh, what his intent or desire is. Two things struck me about Act 1. The first was just the sheer beauty of the creation account. I mean, we see a picture of a world in complete harmony, uh, a world that's at peace and shalom. And we see the elements of creation in harmony with each other. Uh, And also we see creation in harmony with the creator. I think we see in God a creator who's ultimately invested in and connected to creation. So the first thing that struck me was the beauty of creation. The second was, uh, and this has come through in our cell discussions and on Sundays, is just the amount of meaning that there is in two fairly short chapters of Genesis. They tell us, I think, so much about who God is. Justin addressed that. He said that we see a God who blesses creation, um, who desires life to thrive. We see a God who savors creation, who delights in the goodness of it. And we see a God who collaborates with creation, who gives creation a creative role. And I think Phil kind of picked up on that theme um, and talked about what Genesis 2 tells us about humanity and how humanity reflects the splendor of God himself. It reflects uh, God's capacity to create, God's capacity to love. So my task today is to reflect on how those things went wrong. Um, This part, Act 2, which we're calling Act 2 of the narrative, is about, uh, you can call it either the fall or the rebellion, I think. Um, Both kind of capture the essence of what's gone wrong. Uh, And this act, I think, really identifies or frames what God does in the rest of the narrative of Scripture. Um, What he's addressing through Israel in the next act and through Jesus, finally. So in, in my time today, I wanted to do two things. So the first I wanted to do was talk about Genesis 3 uh, and what that tells us about the problem God's overcoming. And then the second is how we see in the early chapters of Genesis... <laughs> He's not listening. <laughs> how we see in the early chapters of Genesis the fall quickly turning into an avalanche. Um, And I think that's reflected in a number of parts of the story. So, to understand the fall, I think I wanted to briefly recap um, the second chapter of Genesis. Because you will remember that in Genesis 2 we see God's uh, picture, a picture of a garden that's been planted in Eden. uh, A garden that grows every kind of tree imaginable. But it also... Uh, God's also placed there two trees that are kind of mysterious. There's the tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think this is really the Genesis account, the only place where these trees show up. The, with the trees in the garden, God places a man and a woman, and they are there to live in the garden and to tend to it. And he tells them that they can eat from any tree at all to their heart's content, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God warns them, if you eat of that tree, you will die. So it's not clear really what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. I don't think that's, um, I don't think anyone's really grounded that. Uh, but I think that's also not really the question to ask of it, because I think the emphasis in Genesis 2 is on the prohibition. It's on God saying to the man and the woman, eat of any tree but not that one. Scholars have referred to it as the tree presenting the alternative to discipleship. And I think that is the key to understanding what then happens in Genesis 3. The man and the woman are presented with two paths. They're presented with one of obedience, and they're presented with uh, the alternative, which is rebellion. So that brings us to chapter 3. And this chapter opens, if you remember, with a crafty talking serpent. The serpent comes up to Eve and says, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And you see, even in that very first passage, he subtly misrepresents God. So he puts to Eve, you can't eat of any tree here, can you? He's suggesting that God has been this kind of over-strict parent who doesn't want Adam and Eve to thrive. Eve's response first corrects the serpent. She says, well, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden except the one in the middle. But then she herself exaggerates God's strictness. But she says, and God said, we can't eat the fruit of that tree, nor even touch it, or we shall die. Now, God, of course, didn't say don't touch the fruit. He said don't eat it. And I think what Eve is doing there is sort of like the child who complains about their parents not letting them do anything. She's sort of over-egging the, the, uh, the strictness of the, of the rule. The serpent then, possibly emboldened by Eve's kind of playing the game, uh, comes back and says, well, if you do eat of it, you won't die. Right? So God's tricking you. You're not going to die if you eat of the, the tree. And in fact, he says, if you do eat it, God's going to open your eyes and you will be like God. And I think that's really the important that's the key to understanding what Adam and Eve are doing here. He says, you will be like God, God knows this, uh, and you will know good and evil. So that really is all the temptations that's required for Eve, um, and she chooses to disobey and eats the fruit, and then she shares it with her husband. So I think in that kind of brief narrative, we see quite a lot about the nature of the rebellion that happens. I think, first of all, it shows us the way in which temptation, the temptation of sin, most commonly arises. And I think it's really a kind of willful blindness to the life that comes from living in harmony with God. It's the serpent casting doubt on the inherent goodness of God. He's presenting God's love as envy. He's presenting Adam and Eve's service as a form of slavery. He's framing what really is a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. And I think we see this pattern of temptation repeated throughout Scripture, and we probably see it in our own lives. We have 
a tendency, I think, to convince ourselves over and over again that obedience to God is life-sapping rather than life-giving. Uh, we were discussing yesterday at Praxis, a lot of us feel like uh, lots of sort of spiritual disciplines, we get a lot out of them, and we know that, but yet we find it hard to do them. And I think that's because in the moment, we tell ourselves, it's not going to give us life, it's actually taking something away from, from me. So there's that temptation aspect of it. And I think we also see, perhaps more fundamentally, the nature of the rebellion. The true nature of sin. And that, I suggest, is an attempt by humans to be as God. So to, to decide for themselves, rather than God, what's right and wrong. The, the book, The Narrative of Scripture, describes this as an assertion of autonomy. And it's kind of funny because autonomy has a pretty good reputation in our culture. And it, it comes from the Greek autos, meaning self, and, and uh, nomos, meaning law. So it's, it's autonomy is being a law unto yourself. It's creating your own rules. It's Adam and Eve deciding for themselves what's good and evil uh, instead of leaving that to God. I... I'll read, out, I'll read out a quote to you because I think that this really captures um, the essence of sin, at least in Act 3. Sin is then, first of all, disobedience of God. It's doing what we know he wants us not to do, and it's not doing what he knows, what we know he wants us to do. And it is discontent. It's being dissatisfied with what he's given us. And it's self-deceit. It's a longing for an illusory freedom when we can only be free as we obey him. And it is pride, it is thinking we can run our affairs better than he can. And above all, and I think this is, the, this is what I'm trying to get across, it's rebellion. It's usurping God's role and chasing him out of our lives. <coughs> now at this point, I, I just wanted to foreshadow something which might come through later. Justin suggested in his first talk that the first hearers of Genesis would have been the Israel, Israelis um, in exile in Babylon. And I think N.T. Wright points this out, I think that they would have seen a lot of parallels with Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel and the situation that they were in. As, you, as we'll see, Israel was placed in a promised land, much like the Garden of Eden, given a commission to bless the nations, uh, but then Israel breaks the law and they get exiled. And so I think we see that as well with Adam and Eve. We see them placed in a garden, given a commission to tend to it, they're warned to keep a commandment, they break it, uh, and then they ultimately get kicked out of the garden. They get exiled. So I think the first hearers of Genesis would really relate to the situation that Adam and Eve are in. The next sort of half of Genesis 3 talks about the consequences of the rebellion. The symptoms, if you like, of humanity's tendency to turn its back on God uh, and to value autonomy over obedience. And what really strikes me about the consequences is that they're so pervasive. In, in a few sentences, really, we see how sin isn't just a disconnection, a spiritual disconnection from God, but it's really a much deeper sickness that invades all aspects of human existence, and, and even beyond that. So the first thing that we see is that personal relationships are damaged. Adam and Eve go from equal partners in Act uh, Act 1 and Act 2, 
a couple that celebrate each other's existence. You remember Adam rejoicing. This is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And we see in Act 3 that turn to a couple who corrupt each other. Eve gives Adam the apple. We see a couple who blame each other. Adam's first response is, well, the only reason I ate the fruit is because she gave it to me. Conveniently ignoring that he was there the whole time while she was eating the fruit. Uh, we see a couple who lose trust in each other. I think that's what's going on with the fig leaves, right? They, they don't want each other to be seen, they don't, to see each other, and they don't have that trust. And we also see God warning that it's, that it's a couple that are going to dominate each other, going to assert power of it over each other. We see God saying uh, to Eve, you, your husband is going to rule over you, he's going to dominate you. So I think we see a breakdown in that aspect of their relationship. So personal relationships are damaged. We also see physical creation itself, I think, gets corrupted, and that the relationship between physical creation and humanity is also distorted. So where in the garden food could be gathered plentifully, God explains post this kind of fall, humans are going to have to toil at the earth. They're going to battle with thistles and thorns in order to get food. They're going to be sweating and they're going to ultimately end up in the dust. It's a very sort of desolate kind of picture. Uh, Then I think we see that human relationships with creatures suffers. Of course, the serpent at the beginning is identified as the serpent God made. So this is not a situation of an evil force other than God kind of coming in and invading creation. It's actually creation rebelling against God. And of course, humanity is is the, uh, the obvious picture of that as well. And we see then, I think, also God foreshadowing conflict between humanity and creation. He says to Eve, your offspring will strike at the head of the serpent and the serpent will uh, nip you in the heels, which is, I think, probably primarily a reference to, uh, to Christ being Eve's offspring, overcoming evil. But I think there's also a picture in there of creation clashing with itself. And we see in Genesis 9 animals fleeing, and God says... Uh, to Noah, I think it is, he says, every animal and bird and fish and everything that creeps on the ground will be fleeing from humans in fear and dread. So that's Genesis 9, and I think that's, uh, that follows on really from this sort of first breakdown. And then the final aspect of this kind of physical corruption, corruption, and maybe a lot of people in the room will relate to it, is childbirth. Right? It's one of the most natural, life-giving Uh, experiences humanity can have and yet God says it's going to be marked by pain. So it's the opposite to a sickness. I mean you can sort of understand if you go, oh you're going to get sick and it's going to be bad but this is the the, uh, humanity being creative, creating new life is suddenly tinged with suffering. So that's, that's the second consequence. And the third, I think, probably the most obvious, is this kind of spiritual disconnection from God. So after covering their nakedness, the couple immediately hide from God. So instead of, whereas you get this picture of this impression in Genesis 3 that they walked with God in the cool of the evening, the first reaction to having broken the rule is them shrinking from his sight, avoiding any contact with him. And I think when we see sin's fundamental nature as a rebellion from God, a desire for autonomy to rule, to be a rule unto yourself, then disconnection is the natural consequence of that, because that's really what you're doing. It's a continuing choice to be disobedient, 
to God. And I think we end up really enslaved by our sin, unwilling and unable to come to God and find the abundant and full life we were created for, that sort of spiritual disconnection. So those are the three consequences that I kind of get from the the third chapter of Genesis. Uh, Personal relationships being damaged, corruption of physical creation, and spiritual disconnection from our maker. It's obviously not a very pretty picture. Um, And I think it becomes much worse. So I I think there's sometimes a temptation to look at the third chapter of Genesis, the fall, as in a kind of dualistic way as compared to the first couple chapters. Um, And what I mean by dualistic is a tendency to think that in the first couple of chapters we see perfection and then we see imperfection in the rest of the account. And I'm not, that's a very Greek idea of, of the goodness of creation. I think what is really going on is that a Jewish kind of notion of good in creation is a dynamic. Um, it's almost better than perfect. It's not a kind of sterile, uh, fixed uh, sort of creation that can only get worse, but it's a creative, dynamic, evolving body that God has imbued with his, his power, his image. Um, and so I think the tendency to look at, the, at Genesis 3, the fall, as this kind of sharp um, marking point misses how things get much more worse uh, in the next few chapters of Genesis. So what I want to do, and this is the sort of last bit of my talk, is just talk through that rapid infection of sin into human existence, into creation. Um, I said earlier, I stole this from Brian McLaren, he talks about it as the fall becoming an avalanche. And this avalanche really gathers speed as humanity develops. So Adam and Eve leave the garden, and Eve then gives birth to two healthy sons. And they form a family, probably just as God had intended pre-fall. But immediately we see that Cain and Abel progress beyond their parents. So whereas Adam and Eve were foragers, hunter-gatherers, living in the garden off the land, Abel is described as a herder of sheep or, or cattle. He's a pastoralist. So he's really, in terms of human development, one, one further rung up the ladder. So he... He has a herd, and a herd gives you the ability to uh, be that little bit more independent because your herd can eat things that you can't, grass, and you can live from the herd. But really, in the scale of things, you remain quite dependent because uh, early pastoralists were nomadic and they had to travel from sort of field to field where uh, the grass was green. So you, you have that little bit of extra independence, but not much. Cain, on the other hand, is one step more developed. So he's described as a tiller of the ground or a farmer, an agriculturalist. And with the ability to farm, you gain even more independence because you don't have to follow your herd around. You don't have to follow the seasons as much. You can settle down, and when you settle down, you can start to accumulate possessions. You become that one bit less reliant on God's provision, I think. Because unlike a nomadic pastoralist who has to travel light a farmer can start to acquire things, food, possessions, and most importantly, land. Because for the farmer, land is the source of wealth. It's a valuable resource, but you have to exclude other people from your land to benefit from it. 
And so some suggest that there's something revealing about Cain murdering Abel in the field. Might he have been trespassing on Cain's most valuable asset? Or might one of the reasons God refused to accept Cain's offering be that instead of using his agricultural skills to glorify God, what he was really doing was establishing a bit more autonomy. He was freeing himself from obedience to God. So in the story of Cain and Abel, I think we not only see Cain's overpowering jealousy leading him to murder his brother and corrupt the goodness of the family, but we also see an insight into how sin is infecting human cultural development. We see how it has the potential to corrupt the goodness of creation. Because scientific discovery and development and advancement are as much part of God's good creation as the first trees in the Garden of Eden. The the ability to learn and discover uh, and to create is a good quality of humanity. But we see how the rebellious sinfulness tends to misdirect those types of cultural activities. And I think the main way that we misdirect cultural activities is by idolising them as a source of greater autonomy or independence, a way of relying less on God. Because instead of acknowledging our ability to create as being a precious gift from God, we treat it as a way of overcoming God, a way of breaking through the boundaries that God set around life so that we might thrive. Now, the descendants of Cain... uh, probably subsistence farmers, eventually start producing surpluses and they acquire wealth and they uh, begin to develop primitive economies. And pretty soon we see these economies developing into towns and then cities. And again, while cities can be places of beauty, they're also often places of squalor and danger and hedonism. Because as self-contained little worlds, a city gives those who live in it... uh, a feeling that they, can, they need to rely less on God. They can do whatever they want. And fairly soon in scripture we see the emergence of the first megacity, where the Tower of Babel is ultimately built. And in forming this megacity we see uh, the people of the earth migrating from the east and congregating together, which is quite the opposite of what God had said, go and fill the earth. Um, and at the same time... <laughs> At the same time, this group that's congregating in, in possibly Babylon, wherever Babel was built, uh, is developing a new technology. So they're developing the brick. The text says they develop bricks. And the power of the brick is that it frees humans from the need to rely on God-given stones. Right. So instead of having to uh, toil away finding stones, shaping them, hauling them to where you need, and then trying to stack these kind of uniquely shaped objects... You can mass-produce uh, mass uniformly-sized bricks. And with that technology, itself not necessarily a bad thing, people can build taller and more impressive buildings. And that's exactly what these people do. So they build uh, the tallest tower that had existed called Babel. Babel in Hebrew means gate of God. And uh, people think it was probably a ziggurat, which is the kind of highest structure in old Mesopotamian temple. And the point of this high structure is to reach up to the heavens to provide a way for the gods to come down. And that's what the people in uh, Babel do. They say, we've built this huge structure. God, come down and bless our endeavor. What they think they're doing is 
not only have they established themselves as this autonomous kind of self-governing entity, but they also have this kind of the temerity to ask God to come down and bless their endeavour. And God, sorry, the text tells us that God does come down, which is almost in itself a little bit of a um, embarrassment because he apparently can't even see their little tower from up where he is. Uh, and it, but instead of blessing it, he condemns the arrogance of the the, the arrogance that I think has inspired this project. Um, he confuses their language and scatters them across the earth as he had originally intended. So I think in the story of Babel, we also see the essence of what Act 2, what I'm talking about is the rebellion. And it's this. While God's creation remains inherently good, the capacity of humans to disobey God and the tendency to seek autonomy over obedience results in a fundamental distortion in the created order and a loss of balance and shalom. And this really is the problem that God sets about solving in the rest of the narrative. Because the contrast between the beauty and the promise of Act 1, creation, and the depth of the fall in Act 2 is really stark. And I think that makes God's redeeming mission all that much more awe-inspiring. My last comment. I think we see in the very end of Act 2 the hints of what's going to come in the future. If you remember God's response to Adam and Eve... Uh, is to pronounce judgment. He describes the consequences of their sin, um, perhaps even punishes them. And then he evicts them from the garden. But instead of evicting them naked, he clothes them. And in in those times, uh, the message people would have got from Adam and Eve leaving the garden naked was that they had been completely disinherited. So the act of clothing them is, I think, really a, a symbol of God's loving mercy. It's him saying, I haven't abandoned you, I've punished you, uh, but you're still mine. And I think that we'll see throughout Scripture that combination of judgment, punishment, and mercy is really what makes up a biblical notion of justice and we see that throughout God's response to humanity, a mix of, of responding and punishing wrong, but always tempered with mercy, because I think ultimately justice is about restoring right relationships. And you don't restore right relationships by punishing alone. It needs, it needs to be tempered with mercy. Um, we see that again, incidentally, with Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. God punishes, but instead, but then he doesn't abandon him. He marks him so that he'll be safe and not killed as he wanders the lands. And I think we see time and time again God not giving up on creation or humanity because we still have a central purpose to play in creation. We still bear God's image and we ultimately play a role in the redemption of creation. And that's really where the rest of the story is going.